This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's talk about a place that needs water where it doesn't occur naturally. And if you think we mean Colorado, think again. We're talking about Israel, which leads the world in getting water to where it isn't. Israelis visited Denver last week to share what their country has learned, and this conference featured Seth Siegel, author of Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. Siegel's essays have appeared in The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal. He is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He lives in New York. And Seth, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Great to be on. You are an expert on Israel and uh, the Middle East in general. But a few years ago, you learned something surprising, which actually led you to become an activist on water issues. What were you surprised to learn about Israel? Well, what I was surprised to learn, uh, uh, juxtaposed with the fact that I learned that we were going into a global water crisis and that we were going to find uh, about 60% of the world's land mass finding itself water-deprived in the next few years. That was a U.S. government report. And at that same time, I said to myself, I wonder what this would mean for Israel and the Middle East, where I have some expertise. And uh, discovering that Israel, despite its 60% desert and the rest of the country being semi-arid, was so water-abundant that it provided water for its Palestinian neighbors, the Jordanian neighbors, and had a robust global uh, agricultural export industry— I found myself wondering how in the world did that happen and whether or not that might be a model for the rest of what's going to be increasingly a very dry, even water-starved world. Right. How has Israel averted a crisis the rest of the world faces? And so last week in Denver, there was this first-ever Colorado-Israel Water Summit. Uh, Interestingly, Israel also has an agreement to help California, which has been in perpetual drought. I'd like you to explain the innovations Israel has pioneered or developed, and I think we should start with desalination, uh, taking salt out of water. Desalination actually was was an ancient technique, but what happened was when Israel was founded, the founding prime minister made a promise to his country that he would figure out a way to make the desert bloom. And really the only way to make that happen would be to find ways of taking great amounts of seawater and desalting it, as he referred to it as. And so they set up a, a government agency to figure out a way to do this. It was, a, it was a very small agency at a time when the country was very poor, but they put some of the best minds on this, and little by little they found a series of techniques, first by freezing it, then by heating it, and then finally through other techniques, to figure out ways of, of taking the salt out of the water and having significant amounts of fresh water. The, the problem became the cost of it. And over time, with lots of innovation, they discovered ways of bringing the cost way down. And someone listening in Colorado might think, what does desal have to do with this state? We don't have a coastline. But indeed, we have brackish water here. And so it could apply in that regard. To what extent have the Israelis managed to get desal to be economical, not only for itself, but potentially for the world? Oh, it's, Israel now produces by far the world's cheapest desalinated water. They've come up with all kinds of techniques for energy reduction uh, so that the energy being about half of the cost of the desalination process, they figured out ways of making use of lower cost energy and have also developed all kinds of efficiencies to run the system. But Ryan, if I could just uh, jump on the first part of your question and just say, what does this have to do with Colorado? The reality is that you know Colorado is part of a much larger watershed that, that ends in uh, the Pacific Ocean. Even though you're a landlocked state, you're part of the Colorado River system. And one doesn't have to 
you know, be such a deep thinker to understand that aside from the brackish water you have in the state that you'll want to purify, mm-hmm. you also could make a deal with states that are on the coast that they will get much less of the Colorado River water, in fact, maybe zero, and you provide them with some of the financing or some of the operational skills and letting them have desalinated water. So, see. so you Col- could tra- be trading this. Colorado would offer to build a desal plant for California on its coastline. And in exchange for the water that I suppose that in a way displaces, we'd say, and you're going to take less from the Colorado River. Yes. I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners know this, but of the Colorado River, only 20% of it stays in Colorado. The rest of it, by agreement, is exported or allowed to leave the state uh, through the natural flow. And so the other states in that process are beneficiaries of, I I don't know if it's Colorado's generosity or historical deal or whatever it is, but the the arrangement is that Colorado really doesn't get to use most of its own water. Hmm. So imagine changing the paradigm. And that's what I think we're going to need to start doing. We need to start thinking creatively, changing our culture, and coming up with new financing vehicles. So that is still in the realm of possibility, not reality. But Israel is actually helping California develop a desal plant near San Diego. Is that right? Yes, it opened up in the middle of uh, last December. It's now producing an enormous amount of water. It's the largest desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere. And um, it's, I was just there yesterday, as a matter of fact, and it's, it's operating very, very well. Uh, so uh, with no, no hitches, no problems, on schedule, delivery, pricing, all, all great. And it's a model, I think, for what California will be doing up and down its very long coastline in the coming 20 years because the, drought's not, the drought may modulate a little bit year to year, but the larger problem of a water shortage for the people's living, for agriculture, for lifestyle – that's not going to go away. And if climate change continues at the pace that it is, then the problem is going to get much, much worse. So, that, so California is going to have to be smart about a whole, whole host of technologies, many of them, in fact, I'd say most of them coming from Israel, mm-hmm. drip irrigation, which is a transformation of agriculture, new kinds of seeds that come out of Israel that thrive on small amounts of water. Those types of innovations, I think, are going to have to be changed because the idea that we have all the water we want for whenever we want it, I think that's something that's some a 1950s thinking that has been imposed on us today. And again, because of the Colorado River Compact, any decision, any innovation that California makes has a direct impact on Colorado and upriver states. So there's the idea of treating water to remove the salt. And then there's the concept of crops that can grow in somewhat salty water. And Israel has innovated in that regard as well, hasn't it? Shed some light there. Yeah, it's a it's a great story. Uh, it comes in a sense. Uh, I don't really focus on the Middle East conflict very much in the book, just a bit. I have a chapter or two on it, but but it's a fascinating story. In the 1930s, late 1930s, before there was a state of Israel, there was a large Jewish population there, and the local Arab leader, the Mufti, his title was, decreed that any Arab farmer who sold seeds to Jewish farmers would be executed. And so uh, the Arab farmers, who had been the suppliers of all the seeds for for Jewish farming. Uh, for famously the kibbutz uh, farms, um, they stopped selling the seeds. So the Jews formed a f- seed co-op, and the seed co-op at first just was producing seeds, but then uh, lots of Jewish scientists joined the co-op, and they started thinking about ways, not GMO, but traditional breeding, started thinking about ways of how to change the seeds so that they could be drought-resistant or change the structure of the plant so it needed much less water. And finally, they came up with this idea of a seed that would thrive on brackish, salty water. Mm. And that 
opened all kinds of possibilities to take large amounts of water that was seen as as marginal or useless and suddenly turn it into something of great value. So what could they grow in brackish water? What are examples of crops? Oh, my goodness. Oh, tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and melons and all kinds of row crops. It's it's really uh, it's extraordinary. And, and it's a little side note. These plants that are grown on brackish water uh, from these seeds are actually fabulous because of the fact that the plant in response to the salt produces glucose to wick away the salt. So the salt goes away, the glucose remains, and the plants, the, the, the vegetables and the fruits are very, very sweet as a result. Oh, I was just going to ask you if they were salty or sweet, and uh, there you have it. Yeah. Um, all right. You mentioned drip irrigation. There's some of that going on, certainly in the West, but not nearly as much as is going on, I guess, in Israel. Well, it was invented in Israel. It was a kind of a crazy story. This uh, man who had been the, a, a real water genius, who I lost to history. I found his story. I interviewed relatives and co-workers. He's been dead for quite a while now. But he was really a, a, a maestro in water. He's the one who developed Israel's water plan. And then late in life, he gets into a political battle with the prime minister of the country. He himself was a very powerful man. His name was Simcha Blas. And uh, sitting home in retirement after he'd been forced out of government, he develops this idea to, to in, in his retirement, he develops this idea of drip irrigation, which has changed the world and will increasingly do so. And the idea of it is instead of having trench irrigation, which is common, or flood irrigation, or even sprinkler irrigation, all of which wastes enormous amounts of water, his idea was what if you could just take tiny droplets of water and drip them on the roots of the plant? at regular intervals, give the plant all the water they need, but waste no water to evaporation. And by, by within a few years, Israel adopted this, and, and Israel hasn't trench irrigated or flood irrigated in, in many, many decades now. And, and this is being adopted slowly in the rest of the world, but now increasingly it's going to accelerate. I have no doubt of it. So there's a lot you say that Colorado and the West could learn from Israel, but I want to make a key distinction in policy between these places uh, because it is a private property right in the West, water is. But it is socialized in Israel. And that is, it, it strikes me as just an enormous policy difference. Um, well, yeah, how, does, you're right how, does, how does that change the comparison that we're making? I, I want to make one important distinction, though. You're correct in what you're saying, but I want to make one important distinction, which I hope we'll have time for at somewhere in the conversation. And that is that it is socialist, if you want to use that word, in its approach to ownership and management. But it is completely and entirely free market as regards to usage and pricing. And that has the most profound effect on the way water is managed in Israel. So while it is true that um, Israel manages it in a central way rather than a private property right, and that is an important difference because you have the highest, best use of water uh, for the society at large, um, I, I think that um, the fact that Israel charges a full price for its water and that changes farmers' behavior and, and homeowners' behavior is not insignificant. But vis-a-vis -vis the laws of private ownership, I mean, one could positively imagine a day when the government or private enterprise <clears throat> begins buying up the water rights the farmers and other landholders have for their water and donating it into a public trust. One could certainly imagine that. <clears throat> particularly as things get worse in the world of water. 
Well, let's. You know, you know. I just want to say is that you know the laws were made by by us at a time. I mean, not you and me, but the laws were made by us to accommodate the economic needs of Colorado and the West at a time when it was very, very rich in water and very poor in population. Very few people, and they wanted to bring farmers and miners out to the West. They did this. They created this water property right as a way of encouraging that. Well, you know, now the world has changed, so we could we could figure out ways of changing that as well. But that change would require even constitutional changes, for instance, in Colorado. Let's talk more about the price of water in Israel and uh, this notion of best use and what that means uh, if it's managed by the government. We're speaking with Seth Siegel. He's the author of Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World, Let There Be Water. And he was recently at a Colorado-Israel Water Summit in Denver. The conversation continues after a break. This is CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation now with author Seth Siegel. His book is Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. Siegel was in Denver just last week for the first ever Colorado-Israel Water Summit. And uh, Seth, we were talking about uh, just before the break, perhaps the most innovative thing that Israel has done and that is that consumers there pay the actual price of water. And that is not true in the U.S., and the West especially, where our bills don't reflect the true cost of these massive projects that have brought water to our faucets. Uh, this is a, a fairly recent development, I understand, in Israel. The, the government hiked up the cost of water by like 40 percent. How did, how did that work? Well, what happened? What happened was a realization that. Excuse me. <clears throat> what happened was a realization that they needed to find ways of uh, incentivizing people to behave rationally, and particularly farmers. You know, uh, probably most of your listeners know that agriculture is the, by far and away the largest user of water. But when farmers, <clears throat> so sorry, but when farmers receive subsidized water. Um, they don't have the same market incentives that we do in all of our other planning in our lives, whether it's taking a vacation or buying a shirt or buying a television. Price matters, not just not just all the other externalities. So by raising the price of water to its real price, they didn't just raise it to a punitive price. It was whatever the real price of the water is to run the water system, to build the infrastructure, to make sure it's a fast, efficient, low-leakage system. Whatever that is, consumers will pay the real price. It was decreed. And nobody likes to pay more, but people at the same time appreciate the fact that there they are in the Middle East with this very constrained water, and Israel has water as if they're in London or New York City or, or, in, or in Denver, Colorado. And that's something that people appreciate very, very much. And the, the most important part of this, though, is that in a culture that is very water-revering, in a culture that is focused on conservation, when they instituted real pricing, within one year— there was a drop in national usage by 16%. Farmers changed the crops they were planting. They started adopting more technology. And I think that that's something that's helpful and good for everyone everywhere. Because when you have, un when you have subsidies, it distorts the market generally and in water particularly. What did it mean for poor people in Israel? It meant nothing at all. And I'll tell you why. Israel is a social democratic society. And just like us in America, if you're poor here and you get subsidized food or you get subsidized housing, the same is true in Israel. So they made a policy that everybody had, somebody had to pay for everybody's water. And if you're a poor person who couldn't afford your water bill, 
then the understanding was that the poor person, the same way they'd apply for food aid or housing aid or education aid or whatever else they needed to apply for, they would just simply apply for, for water assistance and their water bills would be paid for by the social welfare agency. So poor people were unaffected by it uh, completely in the same way that they don't go hungry in Israel or in the United States in the main. Um, so they also don't go thirsty. Seth, you talked about the prices being reflective of the real market, but that the the water is managed for best use by the Israeli government. I can imagine people in the West hearing that and thinking, well, that sounds scary. Why should the government decide what, what the best use is? Uh, here, a farmer gets to decide that or a municipality. Well, not really. I mean, you still have long-range planning. You still have to build infrastructure. Somebody needs to bring that water to the farmer. Somebody needs to bring that that pipe to the housing complex. And somebody has to think about the best way to do this. We still do something akin to that with our zoning process. We give authority, even the most even the most libertarian of societies, we give all kinds of authorities and give red lights and yellow blinking lights to government authorities to help manage uh, a complex society. And in Israel, they just took that to one step further, a more logical extension. But I don't think, I, I think what's important to understand is, I don't know if how many of your listeners have been to Israel. It's a fascinating place. It's a very contentious place. People, everyone has an opinion about everything it feels like. And it's not a society where people are immune to litigation as they are in the United States. However, here's what I found so incredible. In a country that is loaded with lawyers and loaded with people with grievances about this, that, or the next thing about social life, the number of lawsuits over water issues are, are if not zero, very close to zero. And I think that in, I did about 220 interviews for the book. I interviewed 190 Israelis, 20 Palestinians, and 10 U.S. government officials for the book. And what I found amazing is no matter who it was I interviewed in Israel of these 190 Israelis I interviewed, I asked them all, do you like the system? Would you rather have a free market? You have a free market economy in every other part of your society in Israel. Why not in water? And whether you were a businessman or you were a farmer or you were a government official, everyone came up with the exact same answer, which was the system works so well, why in the world would we change it? And so that was a that was an interesting comment. I, I spoke to a libertarian professor who said to me that he's in principle opposed to what we call the kibbutz mentality, which is the socialist farm. And he said, but in water, I'm a kibbutznik. Meaning he espoused this notion of sort of collective cooperation. Uh, whenever we do water stories, Seth, um, we hear from listeners who say Colorado should limit growth or people should eat less meat or you shouldn't be allowed to grow cotton in the desert. What do you think? Well, I think not. I think that that's the beauty of, of a pricing system. I think that I'm, I'm opposed in general to authoritarianism. I'm opposed in general to government dictate as to how people should live their lives, whether it should be how many children they can have or whether they set the thermostat at 72 or 68. And I, I think also that goes to people's diets. But what I do think is that once you introduce pricing as a real factor in this, a hamburger, instead of being 99 cents at McDonald's, if it, if it features the real cost of growing the grain and of, and of getting water to the cattle and of getting the cattle to market, if it fe features the real price of all that, then it'll be priced appropriately and people make right decisions. That's why, I, you know, I'm in San Diego now. And yesterday I was at a seminar where people said everyone should be compelled to pull out their gardens and their lawns. 
And I, I don't agree with that. I think if people let people make choices, if they don't want to go on a summer vacation that year, but they want to have a green lawn, let them spend more money. The problem we have is that our water is so deeply subsidized. Even people who get water bills, they don't understand that their water is so deeply subsidized that it's functionally free. That if people pay the real price, then they'll respond appropriately. We see that everywhere in the world with every other f- function of pricing and, and in Israel around water as well. Colorado is looking at what Israel has done in terms of water storage underground um, rather than in big open reservoirs where a lot of that water evaporates. And I want to play a clip, Seth, from the man who led the creation of Colorado's first statewide water plan last year. That's James Eklund. The technology right now is coming to the point where we can do an MRI for the ground, so to speak. So you take a picture of the ground and you know exactly acre foot in, acre foot out, how much storage is potentially available underneath uh, the ground. Other places in the world are doing this. Recharge projects in Israel and Australia, uh, Phoenix, Arizona does this and has been for a, a long time with their Colorado River water. There are, like I said, technological advancements that mean that this could be another uh, area of storage that we should really explore, especially along the Front Range here in the, the South Platte Basin. And one that doesn't require as much concrete as a dam. That's exactly right. Because these are natural ways of storing water. What have the Israelis learned just briefly about aquifers that might be helpful? So what Israel has done, and it's a fascinating story, is that they discovered that the environment is improved by using all these different techniques, whether it's reuse of sewage, whether it's agricultural revolution, whether it's desalination, whether it's conservation and pricing. And what they've done with their aquifers is they've put them now into a perfect balance. There's a proper height for aquifers that keeps the land from cracking above and a perfect height for the health of the water. So there's less salt and less uh, arsenic and other other bad things in there. And Israel now, because there's this multifaceted integrated water system where they take more desalinated water when they need it and they have sewage water on supply, uh, sewage treated water when they need that on supply, because of that, they can modulate the level of their one and only freshwater lake and also their aquifers. And the idea of of using your aquifer as a, as a storage facility is a great idea, but you still have to have the water. And that's going to be a problem for an ever drier world. You know, it's a nice idea to say, we'll fill the aquifer, mm. but you have to have the water in the first place to fill the aquifer or the underground reservoir. Okay, sewage, you mentioned that Israel has a high rate of taking sewage water, cleaning it, and reusing it, much higher than in the United States. I think um, anyone who hears that is worried about having to drink water that used to be sewage water. There's a psychological block there. Uh, Before we go, shed some light on that for us. Israel agrees with that that squeamishness. And in fact, by law, no one drinks sewage-treated water at all. But the water is treated to an ultra-high pure level where in a crisis you actually could drink it, but no one has to drink it because there's lots of other water sources. And what they do is they spend 30 years building a parallel national water infrastructure system that takes that ultra-pure water, treated sewage, and pipes it to agricultural districts where it is used to grow a variety of crops. And what we do in America is we treat our water with a great expense, a lot of energy costs, and then we dump it. And that is purely crazy. And what we should be doing is finding out industrial uses and agricultural uses for our treated sewage so that we don't have to rely on fresh water for all those other things. And I think that you're going to see more and more of that in the future. By the way, you said there's a disparity between Israel and America. Israel leads the world by far at about 86, 87% of its sewage reused for agriculture. The United States, it's about 5 or 6%. 
and the nearest country to Israel in the world is Spain at 16%. So there's a lot of catching up for the world to do, but this is a crucial resource that is actually better for the environment. But the final point is, I agree with you. I don't want to have what's called toilet to tap. I don't want to be drinking my sewage. Thanks so much for being with us, Seth. It's really a pleasure. I love serious conversation about water. Indeed. And um, sorry about having to clear your throat. It sounded like you might have been in need of water yourself. He's the author of Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. And he was in Denver last week to talk with Coloradans about what Israel can teach this state and the West about water. Still to come, we'll try to do something Congress hasn't been able to, and that's balance the federal budget. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Washington hasn't balanced the federal budget in years, and the deficit will grow this year. But could you balance the budget, given the chance? The creators of a new online tool want you to give it a try, at least. This is from the Bipartisan Policy Center based in D.C. and Engaged Public. It's a Denver group that educates people about public policy. And here to give us a look at this tool is Chris Adams. He directs Engaged Public. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. You call this the Federal Balancing Act. Uh, At the top of the page, you tell us two very important pieces of information based on the choices that we'll make. So whether we're in a deficit and then what the country's long term outlook is. Explain why those are the two most important measures. Yes. So uh, the current deficit is, uh, is, is the underfunding of this year's budget. And it's about $544 billion. And uh, in order to pay for that, the, uh, the government has to borrow. And then over years uh, of deficits, that accumulates. And so the next piece of information is the 25-year outlook if the current uh, deficit situation were to persist. Yeah. Well, if you say that a deficit is necessarily a bad thing, aren't you ignoring the fact that lots of us go into some version of a deficit or debt for good reasons, you know, to buy a house or to buy a car or to start a business, get yeah. an education? Actually, and we're not saying that deficits are, are necessarily a bad thing. We're saying that large, unsustainable deficits are a bad thing. And currently, they're both very large um, and they are growing faster than the economy. And that really spells trouble for us as a nation moving forward. So a short-term deficit can be okay. It's, it's again, that long-term outlook that you're helping measure with this tool. Why don't we try to balance the budget together, shall we? Let's do it. So, um, well, it's tax time. Maybe we can deal with how the federal government takes in money. And uh, on the presidential campaign trail, we've heard things like this. We are going to ask Trump and his billionaire friends to pay more in taxes. What rate? Yes, we are going to end these... We'll come up with that rate, but it'll be a damn lot higher than it is right now. That is, of course, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, and uh, he did come up with a marginal tax rate. It's about 50 percent for top earners. So if we put that in to the Federal Balancing Act, this tool you've developed uh, for the top 1 percent, 50% for the top 1%. What happens? Right. And so that's a 50% effective tax rate. So that's what people actually end up paying after deductions. And it would be very hard, even under Senator Sanders' uh, proposal for his top marginal rate, to get to a 50% effective rate. But if you did that, you would actually raise quite a bit of money. Um, You would raise, I believe, about uh, $360 billion. And it would uh, have a uh, the impact on the uh, the current year's uh, deficit of uh, moving into a surplus 
of about $100 billion. And okay, we, so we have a surplus. Yes. With it. Yes. All right. And what's the long-term outlook? Again, that's and, over many years. And the long-term outlook, which uh, we consider to be um, uh, sort of a ratio of, uh, of, of relatively low deficits and them not growing faster than, than the economy, uh, is at about 59%. So okay. we're still not all, all the way there in terms of the 25-year outlook. To be clear, Senator Sanders has a much more complicated plan that includes some income tax increases, but also corporate and payroll taxes. Um, But because politics is the art of the possible, why don't we bring down the top tax rate a bit, maybe adjust it to like 40 percent? What happens? Well, once you do that, and that would be uh, still a bit of a stretch politically to do, but yeah. it would be more in line with uh, with what Senator Sanders and, and maybe some others are uh, are talking about. Uh, if you had it at a forty percent effective tax tax rate for the top one percent, you would still have a deficit of about one hundred fifty two billion dollars. So we're back in we're back in the red. Now. Back in the red. Okay. And you still would not be looking that good in terms of your long term outlook. You'd be about thirty five percent sustainable uh, over the next twenty five years. Okay. So it's not a miracle cure. It's not a silver bullet. Uh, And there are many reasons that Senator Sanders' plan would be debated heavily and opposed by uh, many as well. Um, What are the biggest things that the feds spend money on that threaten the long-term outlook as you've quantified it? Because naturally in this conversation, the topic that comes up is cutting spending. Yes. Yeah, so, so the, the the big big items are things like uh, like healthcare and social security, um, followed by uh, defense. Uh, we pay about uh, two hundred forty billion dollars this year on interest on the debt as well. But really, it's it's social security and healthcare that are the big big items. Those are the largest. Why don't we play with social security a little bit? Okay. Because this is often the subject of debates as well. Can we raise the retirement age? For well, social, social Security? On the simulation, you can. Yeah, Currently, yeah. it's scheduled to be 67 in the year 2022. But if you were to raise it to, say, 69. 69, sure. That would have a, a, a pretty uh, positive out, out, uh, 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 impact on the out, out years, on the 25-year deficit. Uh, quite, quite good, actually. Okay. So the, the long-term picture looks good. But we're still in a deficit, I think, if we do that. Right. And so the, one of the assumptions of this uh, simulation is that uh, Congress wouldn't, uh, on a dime, change entitlement programs, such as the amount of income that senior citizens would be getting uh, next year. And so we phase those in over 25 years. So it doesn't really change on the simulation, uh, the current year outlook too much, but it does change the the 25-year outlook. Right. And if you use this simulator, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are simulating the balancing of the federal budget with a new tool called the Federal Balancing Act. If you uh, make changes to Social Security, Mm -hmm. for instance, uh, adjusting down the retirement benefit. Yes. Maybe it's, you took it from about thirteen hundred or so, which is the a- an average, to about a thousand, and you combine that with increasing the age. Yeah, this warning box pops up, and yes. you've kind of made reference to the fact that politicians don't love to make immediate changes to Social Security. Uh, quote: Policy makers generally avoid abrupt changes for individuals who are currently collecting benefits and have limited ability to adjust their finances. But when we do those two things to Social Security, what happens if well, we override the warning? Right. So we don't change the uh, the current year deficit too much for the rare, the very reason you just talked about. But our long long term outlook begins to look pretty good. We get we start to approach sixty uh, percent sustainable over twenty five years by by making those two changes to uh, to Social Security. All right. So not an immediate impact again in the short term, but in the long term, things start to improve. Right. 
Although politically, you've probably been voted out of office by that point. It, it could be. And, and you don't win Florida. Right, right. And that's one of the rationales for doing this whole, uh, this whole public engagement campaign is we, we need to become a people that don't punish our politicians uh, for making hard choices. Well, uh, Obamacare is a favorite punching bag of the Republicans on the campaign trail. So here is uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz at a Fox News debate. If I am elected president, we will repeal every word of Obamacare. Let's try to cut Obamacare from the budget, as he and uh, fellow Republicans would do. And we'll start by eliminating the subsidies for people who get insurance through the exchanges. What, is, what does that do? That uh, would net you uh, about $55 billion in the current year, and it would uh, move us up to about 63% sustainable over 25 years. Okay. So again, the long-term outlook... Uh, improving under improving, that scenario. Certainly. And of course, Obamacare included a massive expansion of Medicaid. Right. So that would be another consideration if that, you were eliminating it. Yes. And the, the, I, th- I believe the current uh, federal expenditure on the Medicaid expansion population is about $65 billion. So that would net you know the $65 billion. And so that would improve the long-term outlook. But does this calculator take into effect, you know, the kind of the social costs of doing something like that? No. Right. It does not. Uh, n- neither the social cost uh, nor the, 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 the fairness cost. I mean, I think that's an important conversation that we as a people need to have. Let's talk about defense a bit. Mm-hmm. You talked about the largest areas of the budget being health care, so- social security. Defense comes in third, right? Yes. Yeah. And you can make some changes there. Let's say, for instance, you generally like uh, the United States military presence, but you don't think it should have a lot of new toys into the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, And toys is a dismissive term, I should say. New equipment. Hardware, Uh, sure. Yeah, that's in the eye of the beholder. Let's make some changes there and see what happens. Okay. So if you were to zero out uh, the line item for uh, hardware and major purchases, I I believe that's about $100 billion. Okay. uh, You would then move into a uh, a nice surplus for the 2016 budget of about $16 billion, and you'd be 71.4% sustainable over 25 years. So uh, that would help quite a bit. Once again, highly unlikely to completely zero out a major category like that, Mm. um, but it would have uh, a good impact on the budget. I think what's fascinating is that a lot of the choices we've talked through that make the biggest dent on the deficit and then eventually on debt over the long term are politically unpopular. That's right. And, and that's really one of the reasons why we created this is that uh, the, the debt and deficit uh, problem is a, a problem that our, uh, our, our government system, our political system is having a very difficult time solving. And part of that is, is, that, uh, is that we don't, as, as a citizenry, we don't really make it possible for them to make those choices that would solve it. And so uh, our, our uh, gambit here is that we want to provide people with an opportunity to actually put themselves in the shoes of policymakers and actually realistically try to solve all these problems with them instead of just throwing uh, tomatoes or rocks at them and, and, and calling them scoundrels. Chris Adams, I wonder, as you have played around with this tool, if you are more sympathetic to elected officials. 
I think so. Yes. And Boy, you hesitated on that one. Well, I mean, th- these are people who have said that they want to be our leaders and they put themselves out there. And I think that they actually have a responsibility to, to lead perhaps more effectively uh, than some of them have. Um, but I think there's also this idea of of, uh, of an engaged public that can help solve problems. And, and that's really what uh, our organization does is we seek to provide uh, citizens and, and residents uh, with tools and resources, not just information, but tools and resources is to understand what the, t- uh, the tough trade-offs are and then a convenient way in the age of the internet, a convenient way uh, to provide input. And, and hopefully together we can create this useful conversation that can help solve some of these very difficult problems like the federal, uh, federal deficit and debt. And so I suppose this leads to the natural question that if you care about the deficit, if you think that that is a problem um, long term, you have to ask yourself, what are you willing to give up? What pain are you willing to feel? Right. Uh-huh. And most likely it's going to take uh, uh, some combination of pain on the revenue side, on tax policy side, and some uh, 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 type of pain on the spending side. Most likely, to be honest, on, 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 on health care, changing the way that we think about and pay for health care. Thanks for being with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Chris Adams, director of Engaged Public. The group has helped build an online simulator of the federal budget. If you give it a whirl, we'd love to hear how it worked out. Reach out on Facebook, on Twitter, at Colorado Matters. You can shoot us an email through the website as well, cprnews.org, which is where we've put a link to this simulator. Just ahead, a geezer dad. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A note, if any children are listening, this next interview is about sex, but it is not terribly sexy. Lakewood author Tom Lamar calls himself a geezer dad. He and his wife had a child later in life. Lamar was 47, and they had to work hard to become parents. Regimented intercourse, years of fertility treatments, including artificial insemination. Quote, I had succeeded in removing the pleasure from sex, Lamar writes. Now, with the doctor's help, we were about to eliminate the bothersome sex altogether. His new memoir about this is called Geezer Dad. So anytime I say that, they're your words, not mine, Tom. (laughs) Welcome to the program. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'd like to have you start by reading from early on in the book. Your first few attempts at getting pregnant had not been successful. So you and your wife, Sam, whose name you've changed in the book, uh, you buckle down. Yes. And I I will read from the book. It's, for the next several months, we tried killing our sex life at home, alone, without the professional assistance that would come later. We scheduled our intercourse, the word lovemaking no longer applied, so that it coincided with their peak ovulation. The result was Mussolini's sex, getting those trains into the station on time, with no thought for joy, desire, or human frailty. No sooner had the last passenger disembarked from the 915 outbound than Sam pushed me aside and twisted herself into positions that showed more respect for gravity than basic comfort or the visuals burning themselves into her husband's long-term memory. <laughs> oh, it's, it's funny as you write it. And this book is very funny. But um, what, was, what was that like for your marriage? It was stressful. Obviously, we both had the same goal in mind for the most part. But the clinical, uh, very obsessive aspect of this, of wanting to have a child, we had started by uh, with a pregnancy that resulted in a miscarriage. So we knew we could get pregnant. So it was very frustrating. It was a very big surprise. 
we always we always knew we were going to be slightly older parents. We never thought we were going to be geezer dad. So uh, nature did not cooperate when we were finally ready to start that family. And why did you decide to wait till later in life to have a child? Well, partly partly indecision where uh, I think we in, were just enjoying life. We traveled a lot and uh, a lot of career stuff, the typical cliches. But my wife had – we moved to Colorado. My wife actually returned to school and got her first degree. And uh, – Circumstance. Circumstance. Often gets in the way. And we also thought it wouldn't be such a difficult thing when we finally got around to it. Right. What fears did you have about becoming a father? And I don't even mean just a geezer dad, but just a dad. Well, partly the set in my ways. I was again. I was already enjoying my life as it was, but um, I knew I liked children. I liked my nephews and nieces, and also I wondered if I'd be a good parent. I can look around, and I probably now I see more examples of good parents and bad. But at that point, I think I focused more on bad parents and thought, why did they do it? Why, you know? So I did not want to be another bad parent. The world did not need that. But the people around you who knew you saw in you. The makings of a good father. Yes, yes, they did. And uh, I saw those things come to the surface. And uh, now I would describe myself as a dad first above everything else, where I love being a parent. So as, as I mentioned, this book is very funny. And I think at times you use humor to deal with some very heavy topics like miscarriage. Uh, your wife actually had several of them. Did the humor come along afterwards or was it your coping mechanism at the time as well? That's a great question because I, I actually was asking myself that question lately and a bit of both where humor helps you get through everything in life. But I think some of it was shortly afterward looking back on it to, and partly as motivation to keep going forward. The therapy, writing the book was therapy too where it was good to write it down in a humorous mode that other people could read. But humor is just necessary for life. I, that's all I can say. It's an, an important thing. How do you think the experience of the miscarriages differed for you and for your wife? Well, it it was much more serious for my wife, where obviously the internal mechanism, to her, that was a loss. That was like losing a child. And to me, honestly, I, I was optimistic in many ways. I thought we can get pregnant and next time it will go right. So I didn't see it the same way in many respects at all. And did you have to con- come to terms with her view of it? And was there tension around that? There was tension, and, and yes, I had to come to, to grips with her view of it or come to understand it and see it through her eyes. But I, th- I think she did the same thing, too, where you know, she did see the logic, and logic wasn't a popular thing right then, but the logic in what I was saying, that this is going to happen. Right. Logic isn't the popular thing right then. The right thing to say. What is the right thing to say for, right. for a, a husband or a partner after a miscarriage? Did you, did you find it? In time, I did, and probably the right thing to do is buy flowers and say we're going through this together and we will we will get through this together. There will be a, a happy ending to this. This is some really intimate stuff that you're writing about in this book. Why make it public? Why write a book? Well, that's another good question where I've been I've seen it in print that this was was a hard book to write and that's absolutely not true. I'm I have a writing addiction. I'd I'd had two novels published and seemed to me something interesting was actually happening in my life I should write about. And I honestly didn't really think about what it would be like to see it come out. And proofing the this right before it came out, like getting the proof versions, I got very, very cold feet. I started wondering, why am I sharing this with the public? But the real reason for that is when we were going through all our decision-making and our setbacks, we were reading lots of books like Anne Lamott's Operating Instructions, which, which inspire, helped inspire me to do this. 
And I just thought, where's the book? Where's the book for people getting older as this goes on, especially men, wondering if there's a good outcome, wondering if you're all alone and, and seeing what your options were. And I always thought there was a somebody kind of was, vacuum of, of, of information. Yeah, I was sure somebody was going to hand me this book. And when they didn't, I realized I would probably have to write it myself. And the book is Geezer Dad. We're speaking with Lakewood author Tom Lamar. How I Survived Infertility Clinics, Fatherhood Jitters, and Eventually Things That Go Wah in the Night. When you are having trouble getting pregnant as a couple, how do you start to view couples who are pregnant? Well, my wife certainly did not handle that well. She was joking about that recently, about all she could see were pregnant women and all our friends talked about were their kids. And I, I, don't, I didn't remember that at all. I remember, yes, kids came up, but so did many other things like books and music and life in general. But all she saw were the pregnant couples. And so was there jealousy, do you think? There was, yeah, definite jealousy. Uh-huh. No doubt about it. Someone announces to you they're pregnant and you have, to, you have to be gleeful for them. And at the same time think, I wish that were me, I guess. Yep. And to be honest, too, as, as a man, I've pregnancy never looked that attractive to me. That having a baby looked like a lot of work, but <laughs> that was an experience she wanted. And she always wanted an infant. So the ultimate solution of adoption come, comes into play there and, and proved a very good uh, solution to our problems. Yeah, indeed. At one point, you and your wife begin thinking about adoption because the fertility treatments just aren't going very well. Do you think that you and Sam, your your wife, do you think you reached that point at different times? We did. Re- yeah, we did reach that point at different times where there were Plenty of there's plenty of evidence all around us of happy adoptive parents. We started learning that a lot of our friends were actually adopted, and and learned how many people had adopted children. And it, again, the logic was causing me a problem because I thought they, that just looks like such a good solution. Everybody seems so happy. Because here we are pouring time and money into fertility. Why not just go the adoption route? So you arrived there sooner than your wife. Yes, I did. And, and also thinking about the the time as well as the money, it just seemed like there was no certain outcome or no likely outcome to the fertility. That, that could just add a lot more time to it. You look into foreign adoption, domestic adoption. You pay a visit to Boulder Social Services to see about becoming a foster family with the possibility then of adopting later. And you quote in the book a woman who works there, cash back if you drive one home today. If you think it's weird, you're right. We shouldn't have to offer incentives. But as we've already established, this is one cold world. Is that a direct quote? Or that is a direct quote. And she, she was a great social worker with a very dark sense of humor. Gallows humor. Gallows humor. And the mantra of this book, something we were told early on, is be honest with yourself. Be honest about what you want or you're going to make a mistake. You're going to choose poorly. And I think back that – I think that social worker was discouraging people from making a rash decision, from jumping into something that was a huge commitment. I think she was doing a great job actually. And I did not jump into that. I, I, we were honest about what we thought we could handle and, and what our original goals were. Yeah, and you eventually settle on an adoption agency. You are asked to produce a 10-minute video about your family, your home, and this was an awkward experience. Yes, it was very awkward where even even the plan – first of all, when you consider – right away you consider what are other people going to produce? How do you make yours different? There was just a lot of pressure on how to get it right, what to put in there. But our filming did not go very well, where we were very self-conscious. Um, we filmed outside, and as a, ter- a friend helped us film it, as, a, as it turned out, the special effects of airplanes flying overhead would drown us out whenever we did say something pertinent or poignant or intelligent. And we rarely said anything. 
<laughs> intelligent in, her, in the filming. Well, they apparently were not looking for a Hollywood blockbuster because no. you, you wound up um, getting to the top of the waiting list. And this is when Evelyn comes into your life. Yes. And what was that call like? I think the phone rings. Well, it was very surprising where uh, we were used to talking with our caseworker. She, you know, kept us in the loop. But we were expecting a, a two-year wait or longer. And she'd given us hints that things are moving faster here than we anticipated. But we were very, caught very much off guard when she called to say there was actually an adoption in the works. And how old were you when the call came? Mm, Got to think about that. I guess I was 47 because I turned 47. 48 a few months after we adopted. Very quickly, hardest thing about being a geezer dad? Mm, um, I can think of right now all the positive things oh, come, to, give come me to mind. Let's, let's end on that. Positive. Well, <laughs> I, I'm a very appreciative father, and I, I think I don't take, take things for granted. I savor each hug. I savor each good grade. I love being around my daughter. And the thing about being a good father, I am determined to stay one. I, that's, that's my big goal in life. Stick around and be a good dad. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Author Tom Lamar lives in Lakewood. His new memoir is called Geezer Dad. You can read an excerpt at CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.